Hey everyone, you're listening to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance with me, Vicky Abugalia. And me, Jordan Mays. Welcome to the show and thank you for tuning in. Today's show is titled Healing in Community, Volume 2, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. Content warning for this month includes mention of police violence. As always, we'd like to begin the show with a land acknowledgement. The land that we are occupying is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ottawa, Kaskaskia, and others. It is necessary for those of us whose ancestors were not brought to this land in chains to reflect upon our unearned privilege from the history of genocide and land theft perpetuated by generations of aggressive settlement and ongoing systematic structural genocide. We must recognize that no society can ever have an ethical relationship to the place it stole, especially when the land was cultivated from stolen bodies and labor from indigenous Africans turned property. So last month we said that it was going to be our last episode ever, but we lied. Ooh, caught us in a lie. <laughs> um, because we had so much content with our guests that we didn't want to clip any of it because it was all really good and valuable and worthy of being heard so we just thought we'd split it up into two episodes last month our episode featured hana and aloe vera and this month we're going to be featuring Ailey and hanif without further ado we asked them to share a story with a friend that inspired them what perspectives does the climate crisis lend their work and how they cultivate sustainable resistance as organizers and as artists in this city I just want to get you started off by saying like your names, pronouns, and what you do in the environmental justice and climate justice scene, personally and collectively. I'm Ailey. I use they, them pronouns. I do a lot of art-related things involving climate justice work, I guess, and Sunrise in particular. I like to sing and have a good time (laughs) a good time I am interested in making sunrise in particular but like organizing in general more accessible more like high school aged youth type thing like also them (laughs) organizing more because currently I'm like one of the only high schoolers um organized in sunrise Could you share a story about a friend or a comrade that you've had and a time when they inspired you? I wasn't originally going to do this story. I'd like originally come up with a different one. So I will tell a story of my grandma then. My grandma, she has Alzheimer's now, but I've kind of like known her through like the journey of having Alzheimer's. But like she is someone who was one of the first people I really saw embodying love and also joy and like creativity and being really hilarious and making people feel good around Mm. her and seeing people for what like what was happening I remember she wasn't in like supported living yet Mm -hmm. um, but she was like a lot farther along I was like crying one day and she noticed and was just like what's wrong she couldn't get that many words out but like she was able to be there and just like give me hugs um and I remember also like as a little kid we would 
go to the beach once or twice when we'd fall down or like get like washed our feet uh, our feet washed out from underneath us by the waves she would come and like comfort us and we'd hold hands and stand up and she'd tell us well we'd yell out the waves together go back on time out um (laughs) (laughs) you know she was like a very creative person and I really saw the way she used art and like also saw it as like I really started seeing art as a way of healing and just like a lovely process to do because that was something that we could do together and she loved art and would just make designs and do coloring and so like I really started valuing the impact of art mm. yeah the relationship of art as both like a place of healing and then also like a place of joy because there's a lot of joy in like creating with her um but yeah also like a way of feeling things that was so beautiful yeah thank you for sharing that how do you feel like those expressions of love and joy and compassion have affected how you dream and envision the future especially like a more radical future for one it has just overall with like my relationship with my grandmother has number one <laughs> made me really interested in creating a anti-ableist disability justice type future and it's also made me just like the memories of dancing around and playing games and being also just like because a lot of um, times whenever I'm with her you have to be very still and you might just be sitting there together and she might not necessarily be hearing any of the words you're saying or anything like that like just very present and in the moment and so that's kind of like a dream in part a vision like in terms of my vision for a radical future I think part of it in that vision is being able to it's like a vision of the world where being slow and taking time is valued and Mm, yes talking about random things like whether they seem important or unimportant or not even talking at all doing art things like that um, is valued and being with each other and taking care of each other in whatever way that looks in the different ways that is like a mutual care I don't really know the words that I'm coming out of my mouth at this point yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I think I I'm I'm picking it up and that is like I feel like healing is like the process of healing is very much present in the future like it's it's necessary for us to get there so on that note what do you think you've learned from from your grandma and what would you like to to keep and like pass on and take with you as a creative as an organizer as we approach kind of that radical future that we're dreaming of one thing that I have learned and I'm still learning is just like the value of being present in the moment but also obviously also like dreaming of a radical future but like Mm -hmm. not letting the like present moment like valuing the snow that's outside and being like wow that's so beautiful and yeah just like a value of being present and being like taking time and being slow and also just valuing being with people and however like whatever way that looks like yes things that I have learned and I'd like to pass on that idea of just yeah like being able to like we don't have to be super fast 
we can be slow sometimes and we can be with each other. I think something that I'd like to pass on um, is that like ability to be present and be with each other and care for each other. Wow, that is so anti-capitalist of you, Eileen. Yeah, <laughs> I think I should like to shout out anti-capitalist. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. I think it's I think it's really or I think it hits the point that healing is a process that is both individually and collectively takes time. And it's hard to remember that. And having these stories of marginalized communities through art can help impact masses of people to understand multiple struggles mm-hmm. and to heal collectively as well, to understand collectively. And that's hard staring at the climate crisis around us and the repression to people fighting against ecocide. And I'm kind of wondering how does that landscape affect your organizing and your creative endeavors? Seeing all of it can make it like it can make it very hard. But that remembrance of just like healing and being slow as an act of resistance, the value of creating art, like being with each other, being alive (laughs) in the moment um, is are all forms of resistance and Mm -hmm if we are going to get through this and like continue day by day caring for each other, well, number one, it's going to take community and it's going to take being present and dreaming. And it's like, like, it's just going to take a lot, but that like, we can be there for each other. Yeah, no, I, I feel like <laughs> seeing your art, like, and being familiar with the art that you kind of shared with us throughout organizing with you like I definitely see the theme of community and healing come through a lot in your work what is what does cultivating sustainable resistance mean to you Ooh, it means slowing down taking time uh healing like doing collective care and also not always necessarily doing all the fast things of and responsive actions but that is very much part of it in terms of making it sustainable it is a lot of care and checking in with people and taking care of each other and making art doing things that would usually be considered by like societal expectations values I don't know like worthless and useless aka doing art or doing any sort of care work or anything that doesn't make a lot of money and doesn't like yeah, make a lot of money that profits billionaires and kills the planet. Mm. Anything that is that. Um, Subtle. (laughs) Like, is important, you know? Um, And that is uh, doing the extravagant, wonderful things is part of cultivating sustainable resistance. Do you want to, like, shout out any creatives who are inspiring you right now? Before we close out, this is it's a very short interview, but yeah, want to oh, give that space. Goodness. This is an author that I have been reading to, re- listen, listening to audiobooks by, um, but Akweke and Maisie, they have like really good books. Like I read Bitter and Pet, love both those books. And Ooh. then I have... I have, well, Amina Robinson, absolutely love her work. I have a lot more other artists, but I just can't think of them right now. Um, Thank you awesome. So <laughs> Thank you so much, Eileen.
It has been so awesome to watch you grow as an organizer over the last couple years. And I'm like, I'm just so pumped that we got to interview you. But that's all we got. We're here at the Martin Luther King Library today with Hanif. We'd like to say your name, pronouns, and what you do here in Columbus. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, my name is Hanif Abdurraki. My pronouns are he, him. I am a writer broadly. Um, as I, as every year passes, that becomes more broad and encompasses more things. But the shorthand is that I'm I'm a writer in many forms. Very excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. As young budding writers ourselves, we're like super excited to interview you. The topic of this month's show is to gather creatives, local creatives, and ask about kind of how your work is influenced by the movement and also who inspires you in your work. So our first question is if you could share a story about a friend and a time when they inspired you, how does that kind of inform your vision of the future, a different radical future, and also like how has that friend influenced your creative practice? I, I thought about this a bit this morning or this early afternoon when I got the question. And I'm going to go to El, an elder. I, I organize with and am in community with elder folks pretty rigorously. And there's a reason for this. In my early 20s, late teens, I was in trouble a lot. I feel like some folks know my background story, but I was in and out of jail. I was in and out of courtrooms. And when I have violated my probation for like one millionth time, a judge was like, listen, man, I, I can't really give you any more chances. So either you go, you got to do six months, you know, you got to do more six more months, or I can maybe get you into this program where you volunteer at the senior center and on the east side for a year. And being like young and kind of ridiculous, I was like, just give me a six months, man. Because it was like, you know, go to the senior center like twice a week. You know, when you're young, you know, I'm like 23 and I'm like, yeah. no, man, just get, I'll do six months. I'll probably only serve three of them. And the judge rightfully was kind of like man get the fuck out my face and go to the you know uh and so i i popped you know that that was my thing for a year and then after that year i was like i you know i kind of just want to keep coming back here and so ever since then that's been like a community of folks and a handful of years ago a man named alonzo came through and, and began living there and we became we became really close because he was a big music guy his room was like covered in records you know and I would just pull up and, and we would go through records and talk music and talk life. He had, he had just lost his wife and he had just lost his daughter uh, within like a month of each other. And I guess the, the, the long, the short answer is, um, you know, I would always ask Alonzo like what he wanted his life and or legacy to be. And something that he said to me that I really carry with me, and this is maybe in 2014, before I published anything, before I even really wrote consistently, this whole thing was kind of like, you just really want to live a life where the people you love and the people that you believe are your people are happy and grateful to be alive at the same time as you are and are grateful to be a witness to your living. And I think that's, um, when I think about struggle and when I particularly think about organizing, which I mean, I, was, I grew up in a family of folks who organized, my parents did, in Columbus, I've been organizing and protesting for a long time. And when I think about the evolving state of protest in Columbus and the evolving state of organizing in Columbus um, and the evolving roles that I've played, like the role I play now is different than the role I could play even 10 years ago. I think people so get often so caught up on how can I do everything at once or how can I be 
the best version of everything at once instead of asking the question that's simple. You know, you live long enough like Alonzo did. And he passed away last year. We lost him last year. The idea is, how can I be the best version of myself in this one way that serves the collective instead of trying to be every part of the collective at once? Anything that happens is going to happen with people, like a collective group of people. And I remember there were points in my life where I thought, like, I'm so angry or I'm so distraught about what's happening. I want to save the world all myself instead of asking who is already doing this thing. Yeah, there's there's these ways that I think I'd learn to. I don't know if there's enough. And I, I'm sensitive about this maybe because I do love and learn from and straight up like these folks in my community. But there's not enough community building with elders, I think, for, for, for young folks. And there's not enough like understanding how to even be in community with them on a conversational level and um you know for me that's it for me it's like those two spectrums like i i care very deeply about young folks particularly folks columbus city schools folks and i care very deeply about elders and i learn i learn equal amounts from both of those communities i'm kind of curious on how you pass on that raging individual in the collective spirit like in your work in your community in your relations there, there are many things that I, I grew up in a kind of um, a gatekeepy environment, not even in a bad way. Like I'm the youngest of four. And in my house, there was a lot of shared knowledge. Like my parents loved sharing knowledge and my older siblings, because I grew up in a musical household, loved passing music down. But once you kind of left the container of my house, I feel like this happens in black neighborhoods a lot. Like um, it's not even negative. It's just like if I'm wearing something cool and I leave my house and, you know, nigga down the streets like where'd you get that from part of you know when i was a kid part of my instinct would be like i don't want to i don't want you showing up on what i got on so i'm not gonna tell you and it's actually hard to unlearn that and so to think about like passing down in my work for example so much of what i have grown to write about is grief and the maneuvering of grief and the understanding that to uh i mean aramis was just in here and talking about the thing about struggle is that you lose people. You you just do. I mean, I I I remember Marshawn when he was like a high school student at Poetry Nights, you know? Like I I I loved Marshawn deeply. And I remember Amber as like a young, you know, like these folks mean something and you lose them. You know, you you lose people, not just in struggle, you lose people in general. But there has to be some blueprint for how a life can go on with the understanding that you're going to lose people that does not leave you completely bereft of ability to move on and move forward and to do so in their honor. The thing about it is whenever we do lose people who are principled and kind and thoughtful, the world talks about them as though those traits are rare, which I understand because they are rare. To, like Marshawn was very rare to me. But I've instead, in my work, in my living, the thing I've tried to pass on is that those traits don't have to be rare. Like, we have a blueprint for how to be because these people lived. And we can follow that blueprint as far as we can, and we can't follow it anymore. There, That is where we are happily in community with others who will pick up the work where we cannot. And so, collectively, we're all flawed people. Like, I, I fail in a million ways. I'm going to fail in a lot of ways before 8 p.m. And it's only 2 p.m. right now, right? But that is where the collective comes in. Because in the moments where I fail to meet the blueprint of the standards set by people I loved, 
by the Marchands, by the Ambers, by the Amina Robinsons, by all of these people who, uh, by Alonzo, by these people who have like stitched into my life in these great ways. I really think the best thing that I can pass on and continue to pass on is an understanding that alone we cannot live up to the standards that the people we love have set for us. Collectively, we can. And when those standards are met by a collective, we can approach the work generously, whatever that work is, whether that work is feeding folks, whether that work is just spending a few hours out of your weekend, kicking it with some folks who otherwise might be alone, all this type of stuff, right? Like collectively, we live up to the standard. Individually, we fail. And if we are really rugged about our individualism, that failure weighs on us significantly heavier. Again, that's where the collective comes in. That maybe didn't answer your question well, but I, I do think that so much of my work now is orbiting two things. One is celebrating the kind of granular experiences of blackness that have fulfilled me or the granular experiences of like Columbus that have fulfilled me. And two, kind of massaging language and thoughts around grief that help people realize just because a struggle is hard and just because we may lose people in it does not mean that it is not worthwhile to pursue. What perspective does the climate crisis lend to your work in organizing and your creative endeavors? I am someone who is perpetually anxious, like clinically so. And so you can't hear me ask this question because of technical difficulties, but I asked Hanif about their medication use for their anxiety. I've cut my bit out, but kept his response. So here it is. I was, and now I'm not anymore, but I probably should be again. <laughs> when I was working on, I just finished, I probably should be medicated again now. I got off it when I was working on my book. Uh, and I just turned in the final draft of the book in like December. And so I'm like, maybe now I can. <laughs> it's just hard for me to like focus while I'm, you know, medicated in that way. Also, Thank you for even like I know we're like kind of joking, but it's also really good to talk about being medicated, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Figuring out is hard. I feel like one thing and this is a privilege. There's there's a privilege to this. And I know that therapy does not work for everyone. I'm not really one of those like everyone needs therapy people because like a lot of motherfuckers therapy is not good for them for like reasons of history, reasons of all that stuff. But for me, it has worked well. And for me, I feel like I'm privileged enough to have found a therapist I like and have had my therapist for a long time. And my therapist is like, you know, just kind of down to if I'm having a rough moment, we'll like pick up the phone. I think that's that's wild. I, I just never want to burden the world with my own mess. Not any more than I already do, perhaps. And so I have to get to a place where in my head I am not doing that. But all that's to say, I, I felt for a long time really immovable because even when I was young, I was obsessed with the climate crisis. I'm doing like an archival project right now. I'm working on a documentary that's requiring me to look at old magazine covers and put them in one place. And I'm I'm going through these magazine covers from like 94, 95, 96. And I'm remembering ones that my family had in the house that were like predetermining like the climate crisis is bad right now and it's going to get worse. It's bad right now and it's going to get worse. And so even at a young age, I had this built-in anxiety about the climate crisis because, you know, my family required us to read and, you know, my family required us to know what was going on. And I was like, 12 years old reading Time magazine about, you know, that said, there's something that I know that I rely on. And it's reality that um, what propels me most is that the, the changes that I most want to see, not just locally, but nationally, but in globally, in, in, in terms of 
liberation, in terms of abolition, in terms of all these things that we fight towards. I don't know if I will see seismic shifts in that in my lifetime. What propels me for so long is this idea that everything makes it easier for the next generation of people fighting, or at least a blueprint is offered, right? The Panthers offered a blueprint for that that is still being followed by many folks today, for example. Um, the freedom fighters, freedom fighters have offered blueprints for millennia. And through those blue, and I know I keep returning to the word blueprint, but all this stuff makes a life easier. Where I feel an ache and an urgency is that I am concerned that no matter what is done, no matter what blueprints are set out for a generation, say two decades from now, it will not be easier because they are contending, they will be contending with a kind of irreversible damage that impacts every facet of life. Like, I don't think it's a stretch, even if we, of course, we can't ignore the global implications, but let's for a second say that someone is being ignorant of the global global implications of the climate disaster and saying, like, how is this going to touch me in a landlocked state, right? There's everyday impacts, yeah. even, if, even in the most vain, absolutely, like, all around the nation. Happening right now, even in the even in the most like cosmetic ways, even in the ways that are like, I can't go outside today because it's too insert disaster or people. I mean, like we're talking about now in this city, like transit is tied to that. Transit's tied to that. You folks can't get around. I mean, like folks straight up can't. If you don't have a car, it is just not easy for you to get around. I don't drive a ton. I live in Bronzeville and I find that most because uh, Bronzeville is a food desert, you know, I mean, in the most literal sense, because there's not a walkable grocery store. Um, the most driving I do is to the grocery store. And, you know, I, I pick up my groceries and I pick up groceries for the homies who, you know, the elder folks I, I kick it with because it's easier, you know, that some of them drive, but like, you know, but the ones who don't and, and who relied on public transit even as early as like two years ago or a year ago can't get around and i live i'm I'm on fucking broad street you know what i mean i would love to just walk and get my shit i mean i say all this to say that like all of this is tied to these crises that i mean food is tied to the climate crisis and health not only mental health but physical health is tied to all of this and so i start to ask myself this isn't i'm not saying this as a defeatist attitude what i'm saying is um the thing that propelled me once it has started to to come into question of are there any blueprints that will be useful for 30 years from now where a young organizer because motherfuckers won't be able to move the same quite literally yeah like if this and i i don't want to be cynical about the i i know there is good news when it comes to the climate crisis uh it's not much and i don't understand it all like genuinely i don't understand all of it but it's like it's good to know that somewhere there are people organizing around this in the capacity like i don't have the capacity to do it or the understanding to do it and instead what i do have the understanding to do is just feel dread and anxiety and i do have the capacity to feel dread and anxiety and i began to think is that the most useful way to approach this and in some ways i think it might be because it filters my actions through an urgency that that was not there maybe even five years ago and not that i was ignorant to it five years ago but i think the urgency, I feel, this is all has to do with maybe getting older, too. Like, I'm a little older and I'm a little 
more aware of my own mortality. Not that I'm like a hundred, but you know, I think you cross some thresholds in your life and you're like, I'm not, I am no longer very young. And what does that mean for again, what I'm leaving behind? I say all this to say, I want more than anything for Columbus to be a sustainable place to live for everyone. I grew up really poor in a neglected neighborhood and within the confines of that neighborhood, um, I felt really loved and I felt really untouched by the crises of the world, the crises of the world. And I actually don't think that's tenable for folks anymore. And if that can't be tenable, like if the crises of the world are going to seep into our otherwise joyful enclaves or otherwise like hard but joyful enclaves, then how can we make a sustainable life? And this is also not defeatist. This isn't on some shit where it's like, how do we make people comfortable? I'm not talking about like palliative care. But what I am saying is that if the actual enclaves are not sustainably kept or if people within them cannot live sustainable lives, then there is a dread that never ends. And people deserve to have some moments where they are not feeling dread. And if that dread is coming from the broader, uncontrollable world, that's one thing. If it's coming from the structures of a greedy and, <laughs> frankly, deeply flawed city, though I love Columbus, like, then, then that's another thing. Then there are things that can be done on the latter half to make that life a bit more comfortable and through that comfort can lead people to imagine and fight for something better for the uncontrollables but you're talking about blueprint or solutions wise and the immediacy to act and the position that the inherent fear of the crisis is crises demands is i only think it's solvable through collective solution like we talked about earlier in having those tight-knit block by block neighborhood by neighborhood communities built that that deal with that care that interrupting interpersonal harm um interrupting uh systemic harm and creating our own systemic relief and building that block by block i'm curious how that looks compared to and alongside your definition of what it means to cultivate sustainable resistance and how you work through that our first episode of the show, we opened with kind of like um, a grounding in abolition, a grounding in resistance, and also a grounding in hope. So we kind of wanted to like bring that back for the last episode. So um, just what Jordan said, what does cultivating res- sustainable resistance mean to you? Um, and maybe also like, yeah, how to keep hope alive kind of. So small story is. The funny thing is when I moved, I, I moved into my house in 2020 um, on my street in Bronzeville and I'm like the youngest person on my street and I'm also like the only like single childless person on my street or not the only person on my street who is both single and childless. They're either like older married couples as well as the kids and people speed down the street. People drive down the street really fast and you know my neighbor, <laughs> when I first moved in my neighbors are trying to organize around getting speed bumps and you know, naively and certainly selfishly, I was kind of like, I got, I got other problems. Like, I, I can't care about this, right? I got other problems. Um, you know, and part of my, me internally was like, I don't want to police how fast people drive down the street. That kind of, that kind of thing. And then, you know, like half, you know, three months into four months into living there, I remember I was like coming back from a run one day 
and my neighbor's kids who I, who I'd gotten to know and gotten to like a lot, um, were playing and then a ball of theirs rolled out in the street and they just instinctively ran after the ball and no cars were coming or anything. But there, there was a moment for me where I was like, I will build a speed bump myself. You know what I mean? Like I, if it means that like this child gets to be a little bit safer, I will build the speed bump. And you know what I mean? Like I, I called my next day. I was like, whatever y'all need me to do in terms of organizing. Like if y'all need me to like, I know that I have some visibility or whatever. If you need me to say something or call somebody or do something, I will do it. Because I say mostly that to say like, what sustains me more than anything is the collective because the collective, be it like my street of neighbors or folks I organize with elsewhere, they allow me to see things that I otherwise would for lack of a better word, dismiss. Or that I would say, like, I I don't have the energy for that. Sustainability for me is people who will challenge you to say and say, I need you to have the energy for this. You know, not don't like work yourself to death, but I need you to at least like care about this. And if you can't do anything about it right now, that's fine. We're like, we love you anyway. But we need your capacity for care to be broadened. And because when you have a broad capacity for care, you genuinely see the world differently, I think. This doesn't mean that I run into every single fight, but it means that I am aware enough of every single fight to sometimes ask the question, what can I do if you need me? That is more sustainable to me than waking up in 2020 and saying, I'm going to take to the streets. And then being like, that was, that was exhausting. I'm going to stay inside for the next few years. It's also more rewarding emotionally not that one needs to be tempted by the rewards of of collective but there are rewards because i get really bothered i don't really read um reviews of my work i get that like i don't know folks have been very generous about my work and that's all that's all very nice but i'm aware of the fact that i sometimes get talked about as um only sad you know people are like oh the work is is deeply emotive and deeply sad but what people tend to miss is that I'm, I have a deep capacity for feeling everything. And so the same velocity with which I feel sadness is also the velocity with which I feel love or which I feel with which I feel care. You know, literally seeing a neighbor's child run in the street for 10 seconds was like, let's pour concrete immediately, you know, because in the, I could get to that place easily because my capacity for care had been honed by others not just by myself that you don't get to that alone right and so i don't want to say that get into organizing collectively because you'll be rewarded but if we want to talk about the emotional rewards of collective organizing and just being in a collective in general there's a you have to find a capacity for deep care in order to sustain yourself and you, that doesn't leave you when you leave the organizing spaces that capacity for care folds into your interpersonal friendships and your interpersonal relationships. It folds into like you seeing a person struggling with grocery bags across the street from you and wanting to, you know what I mean? Like these kind of things reorient your relationship towards the world at large. And that is also how sustainable living is built. I don't want to not feel anything like June Jordan. I was talking about June Jordan earlier in that same, in the 1981 Brockport writers forum, she says this thing. that's like life is action and inaction is death. If you are not aware of that at this point or at any point in the Imperial core, then you're already gone. You know what I mean? And I extend that and say like, if you 
lose your capacity for feeling, your capacity for care, you've already gone to a place that like I I don't want to to be a part of. And so for me, if if there is hope in sustainability uh, when it comes to these, it's, it's like it can't just be a news cycle wherein we watch police murder black folks. It can't just be a news cycle wherein we watch the planet sink. It can't just be a news cycle wherein we watch our politicians give more money to murderous pigs and we watch our politicians give more money to infrastructure that doesn't benefit the working class and we get really upset about it. We also the capacity we have to feel rage about that also has to be balanced, counterbalanced by our capacity to care for each other because uh, otherwise like we're going to be on an island and the island is not sustainable, but um, but the larger mass of land where everyone can get a little bit is. Yeah, I love that uh, cultivating a community of care. I feel like we've really tried to lean into that a lot, like on the show and just everything that people have been sharing with us. I want to see more of that. I I love to hear that. Like that's that's the vibes. Those I are the vibes. Need to see more of that. That's the cultural and social revolution that we're talking about when it comes to being able to enact economic change and day-to-day right. relations and different relations to the land and to the people we have with the, like around us. Like It starts with all of that. Because I love Columbus, I love the Midwest, but I love the land, I love the people, I love the relationships I have. Not necessarily the governments. You just listened to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. And it's our last episode for real this time. No volume three, maybe season two. Pay us money, but no volume three. Thank you so much for listening. And I can't believe anybody really did. It's been an awesome experience to interview our friends and our co-conspirators and everyone that has taken a moment to give us grace and has blessed us with their intention to make this world better. And we just like to repeat our shouts out from last month. Shout out to Jordan Mace, to Vicky Abugalium. Especially shout out to Marissa Twig, our audio producer, Sam Holman-Smith, Ali Chitwood, Haley Kujawa, and Jacqueline Fleming. Thank you for all your work making this show possible over the last year. Um, and also uh, another last but not least, but probably not even last shout out, to all of our amazing guests ever, including Dr. DeAndre Smiles, Ramon from Just, Soap from First, Prince Shakur, August Taylor, Liz Andromeda, Sadiqa Foulet, Chrissy from IRTF Cleveland, Aramis from People's Justice Project, Eile from Sunrise, and Coyle, Aloe Vera, Hannah Sanchez-Ortiz, and Hanif of Durakib. And all of their affiliated organizations <laughs> all right that being said don't wait till the next episode to keep educating yourself because there will be no next episode so so if you do that you'll just never learn anything new ever again or you can google my name and then also look up substack and you can get educated from the wonderful people i'll be interviewing on my own free time hell yeah okay bye, bye.